Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we explore U.S.-Taiwan relations. While tracking U.S. relations with mainland China is a staple for every foreign policy wonk, U.S. ties with the island of Taiwan receive less attention these days. Meanwhile, Taiwan's system of government has evolved considerably since the United States recognized the People's Republic of China in 1979. To explore the unique nature of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, we turn to longtime Asia hand Dr. Robert Wong, a former Foreign Service officer with the U.S. State Department, who served as both the Deputy Director for the American Institute for Taiwan in Taipei and later as the Deputy Chief of Mission and Chargé for the U.S. Embassy in Beijing in the last decade. Dr. Wong recently completed a study analyzing developments in Taiwan and evaluating their implications. To get started, we asked Dr. Wong how U.S. relations with Taiwan have changed since 1979. I think the, in some ways the relationship has changed, uh, clearly, and in some ways it actually hasn't. Uh, where it hasn't changed, essentially, is that uh, the commitments that the United States made to Taiwan in 1979, after uh, essentially uh, changing relationship, uh, changing diplomatic relationship from Taiwan to mainland China, to uh, the PRC, it hasn't changed insofar as U.S. commitments made at that time has remained the same throughout since 79 up to the present. But it has changed in some ways in that uh, over the last, I guess since 79, over the last few decades, the relationship between U.S. and, and Taiwan has really expanded quite a bit. And so as people may or may not know, Taiwan now actually economically speaking, is our 10th largest trading partner. Some even say nine, uh, ahead of India, for example. So it's a very strong relationship that has continued since 79. But I would say the most important, you might say, uh, factor of change is the fact that over these past few decades, especially the last 20 years, Taiwan has evolved into a very vibrant democracy and uh, in some ways underscoring the ties between the U.S. and Taiwan in terms of values. And so I think this has really underscored uh, how important U.S. commitment is to Taiwan, made in 79 but continuing today even more strongly uh, since Taiwan has become uh, the democracy that it has become. Understanding the basics of the U.S. commitment to Taiwan are essential to this story. Following President Carter's decision to recognize the People's Republic of China, the U.S. Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act, or TRA, in April 1979. The TRA governs U.S. commercial and cultural relations with Taiwan and requires the United States to maintain the capacity to resist force and coercion used against the Taiwanese people. We asked Dr. Wong to explain the importance of the TRA. The goal of the Taiwan Relations Act, or what we just abbreviate as TRA, uh, the goal of it is essentially to ensure that the United States maintains unofficial, informal, commercial ties, cultural ties, other kinds of ties with Taiwan, despite the fact that we essentially broke diplomatic relations with Taiwan and recognized China in, or People's Republic of China in uh, 1979. So basically Congress was saying, although we have now shifted uh, relationship diplomatically, we need to maintain this informal, unofficial, but very important tie, commercial and otherwise, with Taiwan. So that's the goal of it. And, and part of it, that, I think key part of it, uh, is the fact that the U.S. then committed to essentially provide assistance uh, to Taiwan in terms of defense, 
articles, arms, services, and so on and so forth, to make sure that Taiwan is able to maintain, quote unquote, its uh, sufficient self-defense capability. And that's very important because that essentially is the foundation for the U.S. arms sales over the past decades, uh, continually to try to ensure that Taiwan has that ability to defend itself. So that's key to the uh, TRA, Taiwan Relations Act. We are obligated to maintain the capacity to be able to help Taiwan resist the use of force or coercion by other countries against Taiwan. As we discussed in a previous episode, Taiwan under Tsai's leadership with Bonnie Glazer, one of the major developments in Taiwan has been the emergence of a multi-party democracy. Bob Wong points out that young Taiwanese are playing a key role in shaping Taiwan's democracy and civil society. Yeah, I was there in Taiwan for about a month and a half, uh, approximately that, uh, this spring in 2016, and I'd served there before, and And one of the things I really did was interact and sought out the young people uh, in Taiwan. And in my own observation, talking to them, the young people in Taiwan are playing an increasingly important role in shoring up Taiwan's democracy. Uh, In fact, in the last election, the recent election in 2016 in January, uh, for example, the turnout among the youth basically defined as between Uh, 20 and 30 years old, was well above 70%, estimated to be close to 75, even maybe even 80%, which is quite amazing in some ways, because normally in democracies, the youth turnout is quite low and lower than average. In this case, it was over 10, 15% higher, over 10% higher than average turnout. So the youth really are out in force trying to participate. But I think even more important than that, I think the youth, apart from just voting, Uh, the youth have become increasingly active in terms of civil society movements in Taiwan. So very active in terms of movements to promote migrant labor rights, environmental protection, transparency in governance, and so on and so forth. And and there are now actually about, estimated to be about 50 to 60,000 NGOs in Taiwan itself, ranging from a few people, five or less, to about you know peop- uh, NGOs with 50 to 100, even more, uh, and have some, some international connections. And in almost all of these, the youth play a really major role. It's really being run, led, and, and mobilized by the youth. And so I think more important than even just voting, the fact that they are so engaged in building up civil society in Taiwan, it really does form the foundation for democracy. And the last thing I would say is among the youth, Uh, There is, when I was there and talking to a lot of them, uh, there was a lot of concern about what they would call economic and social injustice. So a lot of focus on trying to provide, again, for the people who are poorer, housing-wise, otherwise trying to do something about disparity of wealth between the rich and the poor. So reflecting many ways uh, youth around the world uh, in some ways, uh, including in the U.S. So they are focused on uh, that as as a very important issue. A civil protest movement in Taiwan, known as the Sunflower Movement, was led largely by students who staged sit-ins at the Legislative Yuan, Taiwan's parliament, back in 2014. Dr. Wang's research work followed up with a number of the participants to learn where their political energy is directed now. I think among the youth especially, with their increasing sort of Taiwan identity, they are increasingly worried about getting too close to China in terms of uh, cross-strait relations. 
So one of the major things they did was, was of course, the Sunflower Movement in 2014. And the Sunflower Movement essentially was, a, in some ways, a civil disobedience movement where they were protesting the fact that President Ma and his administration seemed to be moving too quickly to expand relationships with uh, mainland China or Beijing, which they thought would essentially uh, make Taiwan more vulnerable to pressure from mainland China. And so they were protesting in that, uh, in that period. And finally, uh, since that protest, a lot of people who emerged from that uh, had formed now the New Power Party. And a lot of youth in there uh, supporting essentially a more transparent cross-strait policy. If its increasingly robust democracy is a bright story for Taiwan, economic woes over the last year represent the darker side for Taiwan's people and the new government led by Madam President Tsai Ing-wen. We asked Dr. Wong whether the economic recession gives Beijing additional leverage over Taipei. Yes, I think, I think it certainly does, uh, because, but more fundamentally because I think Taiwan today, if you look at its trade and investment patterns, about, I would say, 40% of its uh, exports go through either Hong Kong or mainland China. So in other words, a large part of its external trade is dependent on, in some form, on mainland China and, uh, and Beijing. So obviously, if China were to want to use that as a leverage against Taiwan for whatever reason, it can. And of course, with the election of the new DPP administration under President Tsai Ing-wen and the sort of unhappiness with, uh, of Beijing with her refusal to accept the so-called 92 consensus, it is quite likely that Beijing will be considering taking sort of uh, taking measures, I would say, some would say coercive measures against Taiwan. And the major area this would occur in would be economics. And we've already seen, for example, drops in tourism. The Chinese claim it's not really their, the government claims it's not really their action, but most people see it as a result uh, of uh, perhaps actions taken, measures taken by the Chinese government in terms of visa issuance or other kinds of things to dampen the number of Chinese tourists going to Taiwan. And of course, that has an impact on Taiwan itself and its economy to some extent. They've also done a few things like breaking off the milkfish agreement, and, and they have essentially stopped all sort of communication, uh, formal or informal, between the Taiwan authorities and Beijing. So the fact that Taiwan depends so much on China uh, in terms of its trade and investment does give Beijing the leverage to do what it wants to do to pressure ta uh, Taiwan and the new administration. Now, whether it does that or not is another matter, but uh, it certainly gives them the leverage to do so. And they seem to have been gradually sort of picking up on this, this pressure against Taiwan. So I think this is um, a difficult situation for Taiwan. What options do U.S. policymakers have for addressing the situation with Taiwan? Dr. Wong po points to bilateral and multilateral economic options and ways that the U.S. can help Taiwan diversify its sources of trade and investment. First thing I would say is, you know, as I mentioned earlier in discussing the TRA, the Taiwan Relations Act, to me it seems fairly clear uh, that the Taiwan Relations Act does require the United States to maintain the capacity, at least, to uh, essentially help Taiwan resist the use of force or coercion it could, could be economic or otherwise, against Taiwan. So I think there's an obligation there to begin with. Now, in terms of the options, I think there are a lot of options. I, as I said earlier, Taiwan now is our number 10, number 9 trading partner. 
so I think bilaterally, we can certainly do a lot in terms of expanding our engagement with Taiwan, possibly moving towards a bilateral investment agreement at some point. And of course, although it's not as likely now, uh, the TPP, if and when it is finally ratified by all you know, 12 members, it would be important for the United States and others to quickly include Taiwan in the second tranche of economies that would be interested in joining the TPP. Because, again, the danger there, as I said earlier, is the fact that Taiwan relies so much, is so overly dependent on mainland China. So you need to diversify that and allow them to have uh, expanded relationship, not necessarily reducing the relationship with China, but expanding it with uh, other countries in the region and other economies in the region. So uh, to the extent that the United States can help and others can help to include Taiwan in some of these regional trade agreements, uh, that would also open up markets for Taiwan. It would also, I think, bring about changes within Taiwan in terms of economic structural reform uh, that would be good for everybody who's in the TPP or RCEP or any, any other uh, organization, uh, although the United States, of course, is not a member of RCEP. But, uh, so I think bilaterally, multilaterally, we could, the United States certainly does have the, I think, uh, ability, has options, policy options, of uh, trying to make sure that Taiwan is not economically or otherwise marginalized in the region, that it has access to markets, and that it uh, is able to join other sort of regional economic groupings. I think that's, those are the key things. But what if Beijing continues to pump up the pressure on Taipei? Dr. Wang evaluates. If China does, uh, this is an if, if China does really move ahead and begin to apply, you might say, coercive measures to pressure the administration, the DPP administration, into doing what it wants in terms of the one China principle or the 92 consensus, then I think, uh, I think it is obligatory on the part of the United States to, in some ways, uh, react and try to help, uh, respond, that is, and try to help uh, Taiwan resist this sort of coercion, even though it may not be the use of force per se, but to resist this economic or other kinds of coercion or diplomatic coercion. Uh, and uh, the option there would be to uh, expand and maybe even upgrade the level of our own contacts with Taiwan authorities. So we, we, are, we have sent you know, senior officials, ministers, vice ministers in different ways, or secretaries or vice secretary or deputy secretaries or others in the past 30, 30 years, since TRA, essentially. And uh, the one thing we could do is, is sort of increase the frequency of those visits by our senior officials in many areas, in economics, in environment, uh, in labor, in health, all of those areas that TRA allows us to have, uh, you might say, an expanded relationship with Taiwan. So we could increase the, the frequency of that and we can increase the level of that as a response to uh, essentially helping Taiwan resist the kind of uh, coercion by uh, other countries, or mainland China in this case, uh, against Taiwan. The other thing we should do, of course, is that uh, we should let China and Beijing know that uh, in the long term, this is not in its interest. In other words, putting pressure on Taiwan and possibly uh, undertaking coercive measures, uh, all of that will provoke a backlash 
uh, in Taiwan because people will then, they will lose all soft power or whatever soft power they have had uh, with regard to Taiwan. They'll lose all of that and get the animosity of people in Taiwan. But at the same time, they're continuing to do it and stirring up problems in cross-strait relations will really have an impact on them as well and their image uh, in the region and their relationship with the United States. So we need to let, make sure they know that and encourage the two sides to really develop, I think, a working relationship with each other and uh, essentially which will, I think, to be to the benefit of both sides, not just Taiwan, but also uh, mainland China itself. So I think that's something that ought to be uh, understood, I think, by China and something that we ought to um, try to get China to understand uh, from our perspective. Why does the U.S. response matter? Other U.S. allies and partners in the region and around the world, as well as U.S. competitors, are monitoring the security situation. The U.S. willingness to stand by its commitments to a democratic partner will affect Washington's credibility in the years to come. This is a U.S. policy that I talked about, uh, as I see it at least, uh, is not just about Taiwan uh, and Taiwan's democracy, uh, and that is very important to us. In other words, we need to really show support for democracy and allow democracy to function and try to help Taiwan resist pressures against that. Uh, and it's also very important in terms of U.S.-Taiwan relations. So not just the democracy itself, uh, as important as that is, also trying to maintain U.S.-Taiwan relations. But more important than that even, or at least as important, if not more important, uh, is the fact that uh, the failure of the United States to help in this sense, Taiwan, uh, uh, to avoid it from being marginalized and to avoid its, uh, the pressure that it's getting from Beijing and, and you know, et cetera, uh, the failure to actually respond to this would actually also have an impact on how our allies, not just in Asia, but around the world, see the United States itself and our credibility. When we talk about democracy and support for democracy, when we talk about uh, helping our allies resist coercion, whether it's the issue of South China Sea or any other area, if we don't respond in the same way to coercion against Taiwan, and if Taiwan's democracy that gets into becomes fragile and so on and so forth, all of our sort of uh, statements and and uh, uh, and and other symbols uh, for supporting democracies and allies would no longer have validity from the point of view, at least, of our allies. So they'll begin to question, well, if the United States cannot come in this, in this case to support Taiwan's democracy and its ties with Taiwan that are obligated under TRA and so on and so forth, if we begin to shy away from these obligations and commitments, then what does it mean when we become the problem and we are coerced? Will the United States come to our support or not? So I think it, the strategic implications for the United States, uh, I think, are um, uh, extremely significant. As Taiwan continues to navigate cross-strait relations and grow its democracy, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Thanks to CSIS Senior Associate Dr. Robert Wong for talking us through the recent history of U.S.-Taiwan relations and sharing his findings on the role of young people in shaping Taiwan's political society. You can find Dr. Wong's report on CSIS.org, and we'll include a link to the report and to the TRA in the description. The audio for this podcast was edited by Francis Burkham. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look CSIS.org and CogitAsia.com. 
You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to our podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on csis.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking maritime analysis in Asia. Also, be sure to check out the new China Power podcast. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.